Mackenzie, Mackenzie, Mackenzie. Yes, Lamar. I got a question for you. Que pasa? Do you know what they call a quarter pounder with cheese in France? No, what? Royale with cheese. <laughs> because fuck the metric system, that's <laughs> why. fuck the metric system. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to We Drink and We Watch Things. I am Mackenzie. My name's Lamar. And we are drinking and watching things today. And thank you for coming back. I'm going to say this probably every time. Because if you're, I should say, if you're back. Yeah, or if um, you're listening for the first time. Or if you're listening for the first time, yeah. welcome. We are so happy to have you here. We love all your feedback and your comments that we've been getting. Can we quit it with the hate mail for Lamar, though? It's I, still coming. It's getting very, like, I, I'm sleeping with one eye open at I this know. point. You got Maybe it's like a fandom stalker thing really deep down, you know? Who knows? I've always wanted a stalker, so we'll so, see. I was going to, you know, I asked you that question about the quarter pounder. Do you want to know what my backup question for the warm up was going to be? Oh, God, what? Does he look like a bitch? <laughs> that was that was my second <laughs> option. So, I, you know, I'm glad you went with the Royale with cheese. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I think it played better. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so in case you couldn't tell, uh, we're going to be continuing on our part two-ish kind of. We don't, you know, they're not really parts at this point. But our Tarantino comparison conversation. That's not what it's called. What's it called? I don't want to butcher it. Tarantino November. Tarantino November. Push the words together. Tarantino November. You're right. Tarantino November. This is our second outing of this. Mm -hmm. As a reminder, this was originally born of a conversation about Inglorious Bastards versus Pulp Fiction, mm -hmm. sort of versus sort of not. Just yeah. more like how are they different and how what made them successful, respectively. Um, and we just we couldn't get it all in one episode. Is yeah. what it came down to. Yeah. So we split it up, and then now we got a whole month for you. Yeah. So, so if you haven't gone and listened to last week, we discussed Inglorious Bastards in detail. It's pretty cool. It gives us a little more time. We want to keep these, you know, 60 minutes-ish for you all to get through. So it, it's good that we split it up and now you can listen to more information about different movies. Yeah. I mean, we do go on. So, you know, just let us know if, we it, drone. if, you, can't, <laughs> if you can't hang. We're happy to adjust. I had somebody tell me outright. They were like, I don't have the attention span for that. <laughs> I was like, that sounds like a personal problem. The does. hell with that. I'm okay. not going to name names, Jose. But, you know, I feel like you could uh, make a little bit more of an effort. This uh, is definitely one of those situations where we say, yes, give us feedback. But if it's negative, we're going to be very, take it very personal. By the way, we do not agree with you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Do you love us? Yes. Then your feedback is welcome. Sweet. So what we're uh, we're gonna we're gonna come in and talk about some Pulp Fiction here again in just a second. But all that to say, what are we drinking? Uh, well, it's the same day that we recorded the last episode, <laughs> so we are unfortunately still drinking unfortunately. champagne. Listen, this shit is delicious. First of all, it is, but we realized halfway in the last episode how much of a mistake this was because we are just each every five minutes turning away from the mic to burp. <laughs> we're like, oh god. So for your sake, we are editing those out. You're welcome. Uh, unless, if you want to give us the feedback that you would appreciate the burps, maybe there's an untapped, you know, fetish that we're not... Listen, we're going to talk about fetishes today, so maybe that's one of them. Let yes. us know if that's yours, in which case Lamar will burp into the mic for you, because I will not. I'll, I've done worse things for less money, so, yeah. Uh, I used to burp a lot when I was a kid. I got my quote out, you know what I mean? I'm not, I can't do it in public anymore. It's yeah, not it's frowned upon as an adult. It's sad, but... So, Pulp... MF in Fiction, classic Tarantino fiction. film from 1994. Four. Yeah. Um, and Academy Award winning. Academy Lots of Award nominations. Winning. Quick reminder mm -hmm. if you haven't seen these things, 
please watch them. Uh, I'm going to give you a quick plot summary. Let's hear it. And then we're going to dig in. So uh, just as, again, hopefully you've seen this and hopefully multiple times because it's a great flick. So quick refresher course. Vincent Vega, played by John Travolta and Jules Winfield, Samuel L. Jackson, are hitmen with a penchant for philosophical discussions. In this ultra-hip, multi-strand crime movie, their storyline is interwoven with those of their boss, gangster Marcellus Wallace, played by the legendary Ving Rhames, his actress wife, Mia Uma Thurman, struggling boxer Butch Coolidge, played by Bruce Willis, master fixer Winston Wolf, Harvey Keitel, and a nervous pair of armed robbers, Pumpkin, Tim Roth, <laughs> and Honey Bunny, by Amanda Plummer. So... We got a we got a mix of folks. First of yeah. all, incredible cast as per usual. Yes, as per usual. And again, you know, it's it's those multiple threaded storylines. We talked about this last week, aka an hour ago. And <laughs> this one is a little more, I guess I would call it condensed, where the 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 overlap between the stories makes a little more sense. I think in this one, whereas in Glorious, it's like two disconnected things that happen to climax at once. Whereas in this one, it's, you know, three distinct storylines that have sort of overlaps with the characters and you could follow the threads of like when different things happen. It also takes place chronologically, occasionally out of order, which is also kind of interesting. But yeah, so you've got the the opening with Honey Bunny and Pumpkin, who are never given proper names, I realized in the credits, but <laughs> props to them for they're memorable. So you open up with that and then you get into Jules and Vincent doing mm-hmm. their thing for mm-hmm. Marcellus. Then we jump into Vince taking Mia out for a night on the town that they will not soon forget. You come back to this uh, random story with Butch and mm-hmm. his dealings with Marcellus. So you get a little hint of it in the beginning. And then we get his story. And then eventually we jump back to Vince and Jules and them sort of running into Honey Bunny and Pumpkin. And again, it brings, like Tarantino's so good at that. It brings everything back to where we started at the yeah. beginning of the film, which is really cool to see. And I think... He does it, one, he does it really well, but this is his second movie. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, he does it really well already. You yeah. know, I think that's the thing that's the standout for this movie on a rewatch, on a, maybe even on a first watch. Maybe mm-hmm. you don't notice it as much on the first watch, but definitely on a rewatch when you know that it's going to be kind of disjointed and you're paying more attention to it, you're like, holy shit, it does. It does. It just comes back around in this great way. Yeah. And these things, interwoven is exactly the right word, I think. They just interweave appropriately at the right time and they come back at the right time where you want this storyline you know, wrapped up, you want this one wrapped up, it, it all happens, it feels like at the right time. Yeah, this, you know, I mentioned it won an Academy Award, and it was for Best Screenplay, and yeah. the balls to do this on the second film you're directing, yeah. you know, uh, we're not sure what our fourth Tarantino November film will be, it could be Reservoir Dogs, let us know if you want us to do that one, yeah. but just to say a little bit about it, that movie is so contained, it, most of it takes place in one warehouse, and they sort of cut away to this other action. This, to go from that to these sprawling storylines and having to do all this interconnectedness just there's there's a reason this one best screenplay at the oscars that year a hundred percent i mean if you if you look at the structure it's very planned it's very you know there are really like seven major parts there's there's certain chapters but there's seven major parts because you have these preludes and then you have these chapters and Mm -hmm. it's this setup is even planned really well and really appropriately and yeah to your point the ball said you this on your second time out and really have this disjointed story um, and have it and have it tell the right story. I think the other thing about the screenplay writing, one, I think it was absolutely deserving 
I, yeah. I looked, I can't remember, but there was like, it was uh, against like Four Weddings and a Funeral and Red and a couple other things, which are good films for sure. But I think the writing is a standout uh, for Pulp Fiction over those. And it makes so much sense that it won. But the other, the other standout for me too, is that he wrote a lot of these characters for the people playing them. Yeah. You know, so like... He had folks in he mind. He had people in mind, exactly. He had Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer in mind. He mm-hmm. had Samuel L. Jackson mm-hmm. in mind. He had he had a lot of... He had Uma Thurman in mind. He had to convince Uma Thurman to do it. He, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, she was, uh, she was not on board. And I think he... The story is that he like called her and read her the whole thing. <laughs> like a bedtime story? Yeah, like a bedtime story. Yeah, I'm sure that that's what it was. He's like, let me read you to sleep, honey. Also, you're you're going to be barefoot the whole time. I hope you don't so, mind. So then Jules says, English motherfucker, do you speak it? It's like in a very calm, soothing. Very calming. Yeah, so he convinces her to do it. And that's how, I mean, she she turned it down initially. And then he convinced her by reading it to her. So again, the screenplay standing alone is what yeah. I'm saying. Like the power of the writing, how well it is written, stood out, convinced people to do it. So let's transition because you just gave us a pretty seamless transition. Let's talk about the cast a little bit because you're saying he had specific folks in mind for this, which I, I wasn't aware of. Let's start with, I guess, at the, at the beginning, Honey Bunny and Pumpkin. He, they were written for both of them. He's a big Tim Roth guy. Tim Roth's been in a handful. He was just in Hateful Eight a few years back. Mm -hmm. I don't know Mm -hmm. that he was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but he's been in a handful. He's been in probably about half of the Tarantino movies at this point. Yeah, I don't think he was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but Mm -hmm. yeah, he was in Hateful Eight, and you know, of course, makes a splash there. So, yeah, no, he's a and he and this is of course we have to think about Tim Roth again. You know, we pointed this out in the prior episode as well. You got to think about it in the context of the time and whether or not they were very well known here. He wasn't super well known at this time to my knowledge i mean he hadn't been in a lot of things yet he hadn't done hulk yet you know what i mean like <laughs> this was before the tv show where he can read animal minds or i've never watched it but i know he <laughs> solves mysteries or something so way before that animal minds that i assume that's like, what it's about do you know what that made me think of that made me think of forgetting sarah marshall where at the end she's like about to do a new show and it's literally she's a, yes she's an okay animal maybe that's because we did just rewatch forgetting sarah marshall like two months ago so maybe that's where i'm I pulling think that's it what from. you're thinking of because i'm like he did what now i'm gonna have to give that a go uh but no yeah that's uh he's he's a big fan of tim roth nevertheless okay and i mean they make an impression for as you know we see them in the very beginning they open the film uh, they only have about a five six minute little dialogue heavy scene but it's fascinating to listen to. I love the dynamic between the two. You could, they got kind of a Bonnie and Clyde oh, for sure. vibe of they are clearly, you know, maybe not legally insane. But I think that Honey Bunny is a little more unhinged. She goes a little more bonkers and flips a switch pretty quickly. But yeah, they're definitely a, a Bonnie and Clyde type couple. Yeah, they they definitely are a little edgy, a little unhinged. Like she is that character type like she plays that type amanda Plummer. she is always this little unhinged person she was like the same character in the hunger games for example mm-hmm. just like you know, switch all the time and so i think with her um she read to me of the two of them more un- more unhinged and you were more nervous about what she was gonna do yes. kind of throughout you know but you don't i don't think it's super obvious right away that they're straight up criminals right like you don't it you're like, why are into we into yes. the the oh they're about to pull some shit? You know? Yep, yeah. <laughs> like, why are we focused on these two people having yeah. coffee at a diner and they're sort of walking through, and then they sort of lead you into, as you said, about yeah, we're robbing places, but yeah. why don't we just rob this place? And obviously, that factors in later in the story. 
And I just love that he's like, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to do this, these kinds of things anymore. You know, he's like talking about how reformed he's going to be, but this is the reformed version is robbing diners. Like that's the better version. <laughs> it's the safer version. It's the safer like, version at the very least. I was like, cool. Like I'm glad you're making so much progress. It's buddy. pure self-preservation, not self-improvement. I would say. Yeah. How about when we jump over to Jules and Vincent? So we've got, you know, the incomparable Samuel L. Jackson, not the first time that he said the F word in a movie, but definitely, I think, set the trend for how many times he's allowed to say the F word in future films. 265 times in this movie. Really? In case you were curious. All the characters are just Samuel L. Jackson? All of them. I would believe Sorry, either one. I would believe either. I would either. believe either one, yes. <laughs> yeah. All of them. In this movie, 265 times the word fuck. And I have never related more. I <laughs> I am with it. The F word is one of the best words. I hate to, to quote a Dane Cook reference because, you know, he's interesting. Uh, but he, ha- he has a skit about the fuck and the uh and the cuh. It's just so satisfying. It really is. It yeah, really is. That, so hard, I that hard K. Okay. Okay. Um, so how about anything else to go off of with Samuel L. Jackson in this film? I think he's pro- some arguably well, the most memorable character in the flick, I would say. I mean, he gets that speech, you know, which we can get into in a second because that warrants its own discussion. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, it was written for him. But fun factoid on that as well. He almost lost the gig. What did he do? Well, he didn't do anything. It was what someone else did. The guy who plays Paul, whose name is also Paul, funnily enough, uh, auditioned for the role. And don't ask me why they were auditioning for the role that was cast. I don't know. Right. But they were auditioning the role. He did an audition and apparently had an incredible audition. And Tarantino almost gave it to him. And Samuel L. Jackson heard about this, flew to L.A., and did another audition to secure the role. I would be pissed, too. I would be pissed, <laughs> like, too. Even... But can you imagine? Did he just bust the door open and like, look, <laughs> motherfucker, this is my job. I'm like, I if, so if you said Sam Jackson was flying across the country because he wanted to talk to me, yeah. I'd be terrified. I'd be terrified. How about John Travolta as Vincent? Sort of a career rebirth here before mm-hmm. it sort of submerged again. Yeah. Because John Travolta might have more peaks and valleys than anyone than in Hollywood. Anyone. And yeah. we say, everybody does say that about this role for him. And it makes perfect sense because it's incredible, you yeah. know, that this really was, a, you know, a revamp of his career, make mm-hmm. people remember him, pay attention to him. Also, it was very different, I think, than yes. a lot of things that he had done. It it wasn't a grease, it wasn't a Saturday Night Fever. He's yeah. not, he is dancing in this one but not in the same way obviously <laughs> um you can't have john travolta in a movie and not make him dance but he it's not what it's about you know he's this very different character and he's a really i don't know i it's, it seems counterintuitive to say but like kind of a mellow guy like a yeah. chill guy yeah uh i mean he's a hitman so chill for a hitman yes. i guess is maybe the way to say it so if you weren't familiar with why people say it's a career rebirth like i'm sure a lot of people hear that and now you watch pulp fiction and you're just like oh john travolta is great and that blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. if you're my age and this came out in 1994 for the record john travolta had just got done his third look who's talking movie that's where his career was at so if you were my age and you were a child watching those films Pulp Fiction came out like a year after the third Look Who's Talking film. So yes, revitalized his career for the better part of a decade. Uh, Adele Dazeem happened at some point in there, and now he's kind of back to being a little bit infamous. (laughs) But yeah, he's getting crazier and crazier. But again, he did. He's had more valleys since. But this is this is a gem. You know, this is a gem and has been a gem. And it's it's fun to watch him. He's a fun character in this one. He's an intriguing one. And, you know, 
again, hopefully you've seen it. No spoilers, yada, yada. But like, it's really sad for me when he gets taken out. Yeah. And it's, it, that was as far as the chronology of the film, that's the thing that I find interesting is they have you build up sort of this compassion for the guy in the first story segment, Mm -hmm. you know, with him and Sam Jack. Then he goes in the second story segment, takes out Uma Thurman, or Mia saves her life. You know, granted, it's his fault that she this happened. But, you know, you you spend all this time with him only for him to be sort of like mindlessly shot as a bit character in the third story. And then he comes back in the final story again because it's out of order. And it's like, you know that his story doesn't end well and you get to see Sam Jackson, you know, spoiler, walking away from the business, Jules, and Vincent questioning it of like, no, I'm not going to quit working for Marcellus. And we know that that's how he ends up dying. Yeah. Yeah. And it's... It, it's such a uh, it's such a sad reality of he should have walked away from it. He doubled down. He even had this example right in front of him of, right. of why he should, right. and that he could, and yes. he doesn't, and he dies, and it's so sad. But he's an incredible character throughout. Yeah, uh, and they're pairing. They're <clears> such <throat> an interesting pairing. Again, I think the summary is great. Like they have these philosophical discussions, right? That are so entertaining and yeah. interesting and pretty intellectual. So spinning off of that. Would you throw your like throw somebody off a balcony for massaging your lover's feet, or is that too much for you? I'm sorry, you were taking a sip when I said. I that. almost spit out my champagne when you asked me that. You know, philosophical conversations. Ooh, philosophical. Would you deep throw someone off a balcony for massaging Skylar's feet? Is my question. <laughs> no, because actually, I would like to deputize that job to somebody. I don't like feet. I'm not into feet. Please do that job for me. And (laughs) I don't want to do it. So no, I would not throw anybody off a balcony. You know, yeah, it'd have to be a lot worse than that. Okay. I feel like that is that is an extreme response. What about you? Uh, I I don't think I would. Again, not not a big foot person. So that seems excessive. Which I feel a little bit hypocritical because I love a foot massage. Yeah. I will take one. But But you're not giving. I'm not not touching someone else's feet. I'm not going to touch your feet. No. There's a there's a running thing throughout this movie of all three times that Vince goes to the bathroom, something bad happens. And again, I'm pulling some of this stuff. You know, obviously, I Googled some little fun facts yeah. and whatnot. Credit to What Culture on a lot of the stuff that I'm going to talk about today. Uh, I feel like they should be paying us for advertising. But um, they, they mentioned, you know, three times Vince goes to the bathroom and three times things happen that are terrible. So the, he goes during the diner scene, comes back, and he's being held at gunpoint, basically, or, or Jules is being held at gunpoint. Uh, the second time is when he goes and Mia overdoses mm-hmm. on the drugs that are in his pocket. Mm-hmm. And then the third time when he's in Bruce Willis's bathroom. I, I got to I gotta decide either character names or actor names. So he's in Butch's, Butch's bathroom, bathroom and he yeah. gets killed there. So it's like three times. Just don't go to the bathroom, Vince. Yeah, man. You know, I hadn't thought about that. So thank you, What Culture. Again, sponsor us. <laughs> uh, but no, they, thank you for pointing that out because I hadn't thought about that. But that is so true and again a testament for the umpteenth time to uh tarantino's writing and his planning and you know that was intentional and uh and it's always i think the other thing that jumps out at those for me is like he's in there killing time yeah in all of those situations (laughs) he's reading a book yeah he's like uh trying to decide whether or not to hit on you know (laughs) mia and Telling himself he's going to go home and jerk off. I'm going to go home. I'm not going (laughs) to hook up with her. I'm not going to hook up with her. You're going to jerk off and you're going to be all right. And you're going to jerk off and you're going to be all right. It's a great night. You're going to be fine. You know, I love the little pep talk there. It's it's great. That's all you're going to do. 
That's all you're going to do? I, I told Mackenzie before we started recording, I was like, there is a risk that this entire 60 minutes is just going to devolve into us quoting the film. Yeah. And I'm I'm not sorry to say that it's, it's happening a little bit. That's fine. I was all here. I was all for it. I don't know why we need to be upset. But yeah, it's it was incredible to see his uh, his little pep talk to himself. That was one of my favorites for sure. Yeah, I, I saw something. Someone mentioned that constipation is apparently a symptom of heroin addicts so maybe that's why he spends so much time in the bathroom who knows is that from what culture too it might have been the same article or it might have been something else on google i'm gonna i'm just gonna can i just give credit to google and that covers everything like wikipedia google okay let's uh move to because we mentioned butch briefly so the bruce willis character butch the the boxer who's supposed to throw a fight and he does not spoiler what are your thoughts on bruce willis in this role well i have a lot of thoughts on this well uh, some of it background thoughts. Bruce Willis it had actually had a few flops at this point. So this was also a mm-hmm. little bit of a resurgence for mm-hmm. him. And it was a really good role for him. Same thing as, as John Travolta. It was a great role for him. Yeah. He did a good job and it was kind of a, a revitalization for him too. So this movie did people a lot of favors, first yeah. of all. Um, but also I, I'm both, I, I'm really, as you watch his story, I'm not surprised at the things that he chooses to do, but it feels stupid. It feels yeah. stupid while it's happening. You're yeah. like, here's a super powerful gangster that you're going up against. Uh-huh. Uh, and this feels like a really dumb idea. And you're being really cocky about it and naive about it. And so I wasn't, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not into boxing for this very reason. Yeah. It's fixed. It's very annoying. I don't like <laughs> it. Um, so I, I hate that concept to begin with. It's not like I want him to throw a fight. I love a guy who's not going to throw a fight. But I also was like, this feels dangerous. Yeah, it, the Bruce, the Bruce Willis, like the Butch character is maybe it's just all Tarantino. We, you know, we talked about Inglorious and how the bastards, we love them throughout the film, but they're doing terrible things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they edited scenes out that were even more controversial. And in this, Tarantino has this knack for giving you characters who are flawed and doing bad things, but somehow you're still rooting for them to succeed and mm-hmm. win. And, you know, Butch in this, you know, credit to Janelle, we were watching it and she called out that he's kind of got like CTE, like the post concussion from being a boxer because he flips that angry switch, you know, he throws the TV and then suddenly he's like, it's not your fault. Like he just chills right back out again. It's like, that's a scary guy. Like that is what I would imagine. Aaron Hernandez. It's really creepy. Yeah. Professional boxer who like gets hit in the head for a living and they, the, he plays CTA that to perfection. Real. But it's like we're rooting for him. It's, it's very strange. You are. And that's it's such an interesting lens, actually. I love that, Janelle. Thank you. <laughs> um, to consider that side of it. Uh, you think it's just that he's triggered by this is a really important memento to him. Yeah. You know, which for yeah. all the reasons, it's totally valid. But uh, it does feel extreme. It feels like a very intense response. You could be upset. You could be angry even. But yeah, it's it's an extreme response. But he plays it very well. Yeah, yeah agreed. Uh, how about we've got his girlfriend Fabian, played by Maria de Medeiros. Anything to say about her in this she role? She is not my fave. Really? What I, don't you like? It's not. I mean, she's played very well. Yeah. Let me rephrase that. Uh, the character. The character okay. is played is played by this actress very well. The character itself, I don't love. Um, she she's really naive and she needs taking care of and she uh just kind of follows him and does what he wants yeah. and he's doing this very dangerous thing yeah. you know it, it, she's a, seems to be a 
vaguely aware of the danger. She even asks at one point, are we, are in, we danger? in danger? And I literally said out loud, are you a fucking idiot? <laughs> if they find us, they'll kill us. Yeah. Yes. Yes, ma'am. We, we just scammed the danger. biggest mob boss in the Let's city. Let's do yes. some running, bitch. Like, I don't, yeah. she is so naive and it's very, it just, I don't do well with, uh, you know, people being stupid in moments like that of that feel obvious to me is all. That's fair. I think that their their relationship is one of the more interesting dynamics because it does feel like they are genuinely in love. hundred percent, yeah. You know, and I'm just like, how did these it's people really, meet? Like, where did they run into each other? Yeah, and, let's like, have a side story about that. Yeah, prequel. I mean, yeah, a little prequel there because they do. They seem really genuine. <clears throat> it, it, they seem really romantic, and it's it's this sincere kind of cute side to him too yeah that you of course as a boxer to your point and with his anger issues and whatever else and the shit that he's pulling you're like i don't expect this out of this guy yeah and here he is really kind of um just in love with her and charmed by her Mm -hmm. and she doesn't seem like anything special i don't mean that in a bad way i just mean she's somebody who's sweet and kind and kind of you know again not a huge standout but he is in love with her and that i think is the thing that stands out about it the most would she be more special if she had a pot belly yes 100 okay. yeah. percent. she I, said it herself yeah just rock the, pot, the that was those pot top. bellies those yeah crop. that was the most disgusting conversation <laughs> really but, that was the most disgusting well, no, no it wasn't not the watch in the ass <laughs> <laughs> No, obviously not the most, but I was like, who is sitting here? Only skinny women are like, can I have a pot belly, please? There is not, I don't know, a single normal average size woman. I'm not fat. I would never ask for a pot belly. I'm an average size person. This is the weirdest, conver- weirdest maybe is the better yeah. word. That is the weirdest conversation I've observed. That's wonderful. Uh, I thought one of the funny little call outs that I wrote down, and this this was my own actually, was Maria de Medeiros, the actress here. She speaks six different languages. What? And I think this also ties into like, Glorious, how that had such a diverse cast from yeah. the actors who had been acting for decades in other countries, mostly Europe. Um, and then, yes, it's I believe she languages. was born in, I want to say, Portugal, uh, but did acting in France. So she speaks six different languages, but at some point in this, she says, I don't speak Spanish. She definitely does speak Spanish. That... And then when he's training her on, like, where's the shoe store? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. And she has to fake not knowing Spanish. I thought that was kind of cute. That is cute. Yeah. Also, I love, can we just take a moment to be like, you were like, this is actually mine. I know a thing. I did a thing and I know a thing. We're very proud of you. Lamar. Thank you. That's the only thing. To, Congratulations. After Let's five mark, episodes mark of this podcast, <laughs> I've come up with an original thought. I didn't Google it. I am so proud. Congratulations. We've got Marcellus Wallace, Ving Rames. Ving fucking Rames. Love and we've him. got to remember that kids nowadays will be like, oh, that's the Arby's meets guy. But <gasps> no, this is like, we forget the this was one of the baddest motherfuckers in Hollywood couple decades ago so now you know him as like the mission impossible tech dude and yeah arby's but he's a badass in this he's a scary guy that makes me really sad that made me really sad i don't think he's sad about he's probably getting a killer paycheck every month so i know but that people know him from that that makes my (laughs) my heart a little sad that's fair how about anything to say about marcellus the character well i love that you i i don't know about you even on the first watch I, which, gosh, I don't even know when that was, to be honest. Mm-hmm. But the first time that I watched it, I knew it was him. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was being Rames. But you don't see him for so long. And it makes yeah. him really interesting and intriguing. Yep. And he's kind of the man behind the curtain. Mm-hmm. And you hear a lot of references to him. You hear these legends, obviously, about these horrible things that he's done. He's yep. obviously a scary guy. And the first time you really see him, he's he's very unassuming. Yeah. He doesn't seem particularly threatening. 
in these moments. Um, so it's interesting that that's, you know, you kind of similar to Inglourious Bastards where you're talking about the, the, the bear Jew, yeah. you see him coming out of this tunnel and you expect this big ass monster and, and it's then, really just like a normal dude. And later in the movie, you see him walking across the street with a box of donuts. And then and later call, you see like him walking around box. with a pink like, oh, box of fucking him? donuts. And let's yeah. talk about the pink boxes. Where do you get the pink boxes? Anyway, <laughs> you see him walking across the, the, the road with this pink box of donuts and he's just like a normal fucking guy. Yeah, but he he has been this this legend this this boogeyman in your mind for the whole whole movie. Yep, yep. How about his wife Mia, played by Uma Thurman? What a weird matchup, right? Like I again, where did they meet? Where did they meet? I know yet another prequel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Too bad Tarantino is only going to make ten movies, (laughs) eleven. But we need a prequel for sure to understand (laughs) that. But I just think that she's a really interesting character. She does not fit to me what you would expect for a gangster mob guy's wife who in what way uh, physicality personality okay Okay. uh motivations Hmm. uh the only thing i think that seems similar is that she's lonely and bored and that's why this guy is hanging out with her and again very mob dynamics gangster dynamics of you hang out who i let you hang out with and that's it and so you understand why this is happening but you still at least for me I didn't really think that of her. She seems yeah. to be a unique enough individual and enough of an individual yeah. to not be just kind of beholden to her master, so to speak, and and do whatever he says and hang out with whoever he says and some of that kind of thing. And, and so it was surprising, especially just played by somebody like Uma Thurman, who is such a strong mm-hmm. actress, strong character, strong woman, to have her come in and play this role of this kind of off to the side wife is and of course she's more intriguing than that but i just mean this person who's kind of being handled by other folks was very surprising for me or just disappointing maybe i was i was gonna say that i think she's one of the most underrated characters in the film i think when people think pulp fiction they initially think sam jackson john travolta bruce willis she's on the cover but i think that people don't really value how unique her character to me feels it feels like she is someone who She's bored, but she can also do whatever, maybe not whatever she wants, you know, to your point. But she's having these conversations. She says what she thinks. She has uncomfortable convos, like calls out the uncomfortable silence or comfortable silence. And I I think it's kind of cool. that's what I'm saying. That's why she doesn't feel like she would be a a gangster guy's wife. Okay, so you feel like she doesn't fit what the archetype typically looks like. What the archetype typically is. That's okay. I get that. Powerful, sure. Mm-hmm. in in adjacent to power sure but outside of that she is a her personality yeah doesn't feel, seem to fit that trope for sure gotcha and because it's a tarantino film we obviously get a good look at her feet so there's that for literally barefoot the almost the entire movie so that's fetish reference number two today say, fetish <laughs> fetish on up fetish on deck and then there's only i know that there are you know no disrespect to all the other actors and actresses in this thing but the only other one that i have in my notes that i wanted to call out was eric stoltz as lance the drug I dealer i literally have it as lol eric, <laughs> eric stoltz lol i forgot he was in this. the would-be marty mcfly 
and unreal. who then ended up just playing like drug dealers and pedophiles for like his next few roles creeps. of like he right didn't get Marty McFly or like he got it and then had it taken away from him and then he just played creeps for the better part of a couple decades but yeah so I had that in my notes here uh, did you have anything else to follow up on as far as the cast the characters anything like that no I mean I think we've t- I think we've touched a lot on a lot of their stories the one the one maybe little asterisk would be the uh, Rosanna Arquette kind of I wouldn't call it a cameo but she's yeah She's yeah. there. She's kind of in a scene. She makes a, a, a limited impact, but same. She's uh, Eric Stoltz's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, the one with all the shit in her face. With all the shit in her face. <laughs> Hilarious. And she, it's just an interesting dynamic between the two of them. So I think she's notable for that reason. She doesn't get a lot of screen time. Uh, but she makes an impact in a short amount of time. Yeah, we've got some fun cameos too, and we'll get to those in a second. But I guess, do you want to dig into the story a little bit? I mean, I think we've touched on it quite a bit, but some of my my favorite things I think are, again, the story is out of order on purpose. Mm -hmm. And I love how that's done. You know, I think it feeds into the next section, the next thing really well, um, kind of throughout. And you get these these um, narrative vignettes, Mm -hmm. you know, that are you're going to get a close look at this one. You're going to get a close look at this one and close look at this one. Um, but I love how it's structured and some of the classic Tarantino-isms, you know, there's lots of classic things. To your point, there's obviously a foot fetish. Yes. Why not? Uh, there's also like the great trunk shot, you mm-hmm. know, there's, I mean, that, again, I think that's like in every one of his movies almost. That For those that are not cinephiles, can you describe the shot that you're talking so about? So the trunk shot is, and again, it's not in his period pieces because can't do it, but it is an angled shot at the actor's. Uh, from the inside of a car trunk mm. and then also you you sometimes get the shot of it in in the trunk but usually the initial shot is it looking up at the actors from the inside of the trunk and it's kind of a classic and it's a fun one and it breaks things up a little um, and you see it with uh, with um, the hitmen going in to do their job at Samuel yep. L. Jackson and John Travolta are going to get their guns out of the trunk and it's like this great classic trunk shot. Okay, um, yeah. So yeah, I remember one of those in Reservoir Dogs yeah. of Michael Madsen opening up with the hostage in the trunk. I gotcha, mm-hmm. gotcha. Dust Till Dawn has it. I mean, again, mm-hmm. it's not directed by him, but, written, but, written. but you know, it's yes. in there as well. So it's kind of one of his moves, you know, and I love that. Perfect. Cool. Um, as far as the vignettes themselves, or I guess the, the, the different narratives... If you had to pick a favorite, let's let's dig into that a little bit and talk about which one's your favorite. What's your favorite storyline in this? Well, that's hard because again, we've talked a couple said a couple times now about how cohesive it is and how well it flows together. Uh, I don't love I don't love the Butch storyline as much. Like if I had to trim the fat right away, that would probably be the first one that comes to mind for me. Yeah, we talked um, last week, aka an hour ago, about yeah. Inglorious Bastards, and for me, how that second, or I guess it's like the third-ish story sort of drags a little bit yeah. for me, and that's the same way I feel about, this, about one, this one, where it starts with that incredible monologue from Christopher Walken in a fantastic I was going to say, role. what did you think about the Christopher Walken? Again, it's not really a cameo, it's a full-blown scene. It's, I mean, but it it's literally like just a hard him, left, yeah. right? Like, what did you think about that? When you first watch it, I'm just trying to take myself back to the first time I watched it and how out of nowhere that comes from. It's like, who is this kid that's watching this cartoon? And then Christopher Walken comes in and talks about this watch. And then you don't find out again until 10 minutes later why the watch is so pivotal to the story. Because that's the entire reason Butch is going to go back and have this interaction with Marcellus and some others. But... 
yeah, the, the monologue itself, I think, is probably, aside from maybe the cowbell sketch on SNL, Christopher Walken's yeah. most well-known sort of role, or maybe the Fatboy Slim music video. But I think when you think Christopher Walken, this might be the first thing that comes to mind. It might be, yeah. I mean, I have like five things that come to mind as you're saying that, but we're already <laughs> talking about this one, so maybe yeah. so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he's a classic. I love him and I love his appearances, but I, this did feel, again, like it, that portion of the of the story dragged a lot. I think my favorite, which is probably not anything uh, original per se, is just the fucking wolf, though. Like, who doesn't <laughs> want Harvey Keitel moments? Really, can yeah. we just have an entire yeah. Harvey Keitel moment throughout? I love Harvey Keitel. I love the wolf. And not least of which because that fucker gets across town in 10 minutes flat. And I am like, beat the traffic. Girl, same. Uh, that is me. If you need, if you have a 30 minute ETA, I'm going to get there in 10. And I was like, the wolf gets me. Yeah. I love it. What I love about Tarantino characters is they don't feel over explained ever. I feel like the wolf is intriguing because we know so little about him. He's just a professional that shows up and he's kind of a cleaner. He just gets rid of situations. Mm -hmm. He gets rid of problems. And I think that if you gave too much about that character, it would lose its mystique. And I think you see that a lot in Tarantino films. You see it a lot in Guy Ritchie, who I think oftentimes oh, tries to impersonate. And I love Guy Ritchie, but I think he's clearly doing a British version at times of what Tarantino say, yeah, he has did a very first. Different aesthetic, Both are but, great. Yeah. But um, yeah, those types of characters where you get... Like, what, what is that guy's deal? But I don't want to know more about it, but I, I'm fascinated. I think fascinated. it's because they're presented in a way where you have a lot of assumptions about them that work. Yeah. I don't need to dig into a lot of detail because my assumptions are probably right. They're written in such a way that you're like, this, this, and this, and this must be true. Mm -hmm. you know without mm -hmm. having a lot of detail yeah. um so yeah i think harvey Keitel's really strong there the the uh, corresponding interactions of course with uh with john travolta and samuel L. jackson are of course great you see yeah. them really defer to him more mm -hmm. more uh you know samuel L. jackson's character is like hey this guy's the boss like he fucking knows yeah. shut the fuck up and listen to him yeah and John Travolta's like a little bit of the young rebel guy. Doesn't like being bossed around. Doesn't like being bossed around. And I, again, I relate to that a little bit too much. I'm like, <laughs> you might be right, but I don't like how you're talking to me. So I respect it. I get it. I get it. How many times have you told your boss at work, Mackenzie, a please would be nice? Okay. I, I Because the people I work with are going to listen to this. I feel like I should filter this out. No, my current boss is actually genuinely, all my bosses here have been incredible. Prior to this, yeah. A please would be nice. More than once I have said yeah. a please would be nice. A please would be nice. Maybe so, slightly different phrasing, but close. Since we spoke about the wolf and that sort of segment of the story, which actually is the final segment of the story, it doesn't matter, you know, spoilers abound. Let's talk a little bit about Tarantino putting himself in his movie, as he as he is wont to do. And his dialogue is, is not aged well. I'm so glad he brought this up because yeah. I am ready to rage. Okay, let's hear and it. And I have been waiting to rage. Listen, is he an incredible writer? Check. Mm -hmm. Is he speaking and writing the way that he thinks his characters authentically would speak uh -huh. in not just this film, but others? Yeah. Yes. Check. Should that man hmm. be saying those words? Yeah. No. Yeah. In my very firm opinion, no. Yeah. And you've had 
a Samuel L. Jackson and a Jamie Foxx defend his use of the N-word on repeated occasions. Mm-hmm. And again, Samuel L. Jackson, all of his films, thinks like he's writing, and he said that explicitly as well. He was like, listen, he's writing the way that those people talk. Yes. So it is genuine and that is fine. And again, in a period piece, I also respect it. I also understand. In a Django Unchained, yeah. I understand why that's being used the way that it is and when it is being used. Yeah. But why a white guy in the 90s is saying the N-word over and over and over to a black man is really hard for me both in the story and out of the story and i thought it was interesting that he's using this language in front of a black man who is also a gangster that could mess him up but they are friends apparently or at least connects and i also thought it was interesting i don't know if you caught this but when they do the false cutaway so we don't know if this is real but i assume this is what they meant but when they do the cutaway of bonnie his wife entering the home, mm-hmm. Bonnie is black. Mm-hmm. And it's like, he's using this language despite having a black wife and a friend who is black. It was very off-putting. Well, I think that is a an accessibility bias sometimes mm. where like, I am adjacent to this community. So, so I I'm allowed. am authorized. Yeah. And he is adjacent to that community. And he has said that in, an, again, in interviews and so have other other people have said that about him right. and he is adjacent or has access to these communities in real life so he is sort of feels deputized to mm-hmm. do these things and say these things and write these things and i just don't think that's true yeah i you can have relationships with communities with with whom you do not identify i have plenty of them outside of black people and i'm not gonna say those words it's right. not respectful and again this is the 90s like i recognize that this was a slightly different time but it wasn't that different a time this is to me past the moment where you should be able to be saying these things yeah i agree with you and it's it's always rough and we talked about this when we did from dust till dawn of terms and phrases like that being played for laughs that Mm -hmm. i think is the other thing is you know i I remember 18 year old me watching this and laughing at that dialogue of him saying like oh it's not dead storage in my garage right and i was like cackling when i was you know younger and now you watch it back and you're just like that's not humor that's just something offensive that you're playing for Mm -hmm. laughs Mm -hmm. but yeah we can have this discussion all day about authenticity so i get you well and again i i think that he he wrote it the way that he felt it and that's you know and a lot of people don't have a problem with it i personally do and that's you know and that's fine he is a character also like just getting into the character it's very distracting to his character Mm-hmm. That that's my thing is like I'm having a hard time paying attention to him and what he wants out of this situation and this scene yeah. because I'm distracted by that thing that he's saying instead of what he's doing mm-hmm. which what he's doing is kind of being a resource for them but kind of making it really hard and being really angry and again wasting a lot of time you know I love that when the wolf shows up he also gets in line yeah he also shuts the fuck up yeah. <laughs> and starts to do his job too yeah. which is yeah. make me some coffee bitch and I <laughs> I love that for us, and I love that for the wolf. <laughs> Wonderful. So, as we said, that's sort of the last segment. I I think the 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 piece that I find I think everyone always goes to the Jules and Vincent shooting up the apartment with the guys and the Ezekiel twenty five seventeen or twenty five thirteen whatever it is. Uh, that verse Classic. to me, I on rewatches now, I always find the Vincent Mia story to be probably my favorite one Very like it holds my attention i like the dialogue the conversations that they're having it's kind of like a thing you know we talked about last episode of the the weird zoller and shoshana mm-hmm. relate dynamic of like 
Are they actually interested in each other in any capacity? With this, I'm wondering, like, is Mia... Like, is she just, like, dangling bait out there for the Vince character? Or is she just naive and having a good time? Like, how do you read this when you watch this back? I think she knows. Yeah. I mean, same thing. I don't... I don't think she's the dumb housewife. You know what I mean? I don't mm-hmm. think she's the dumb gangster's wife. I think she knows exactly who she is. I think she knows exactly what she's doing. I think everything that she wants to do, she wants to fucking do. Like you said, she's going to say what her opinion is. She's yeah. going to be who she is. She's going to, you know, do the cocaine if she wants, you know? She's going to go do the twist if she wants. Like, she's not a person who stops herself, I think, from doing the things that she wants to do, even if they're a little risky. So do you think that she walks, like, she wants to walk this situation as close to the edge as possible yes. before diving because when they dance their way back into the house at the end or near, you know near the she's end of the pushing. story and she said you know is that what you'd call an uncomfortable silence she's like i don't know what you'd call that and then he's going you know make a he's convincing mm-hmm. himself nothing's gonna happen i wonder what's going on in her head at that point of where is this night gonna end i think that there are two possible outcomes here that we all know if you had to ask me what I think she wants to have happen, I think she wants the attention. Yeah. She wants the affection. Yeah. I get the impression her husband's not around a lot. Mm-hmm. She's not getting a lot of that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that she would pull the trigger. Yeah. If you if, if I if I had to ask if just because she knows her husband so well. If her husband wasn't her husband and hadn't just thrown someone off a building, you know, whatever, <laughs> and isn't ready to, you know, kill people right and left, yeah. uh, then she probably would, I think, do the thing. She's interested in this guy. She's had a good time. They Is have... that the official name for it on this show? The Thing? The Thing. <laughs> it's very <laughs> PG for a show where we're saying fuck and talking about feet fetishes. We'll would just she call fuck sex the guy? The, the answer is yeah, yes. Okay, okay. Let me just get right down to it. Yes, I think she would because she's interested in him. They have chemistry. I think that part is real. Okay. And I think she's playing with fire and she knows it and she's i think she's she would pull back just before getting burned right yeah walk to the walk to the edge of the cliff don't jump it's when you said the the note about her husband not being very attentive i think i just pieced together and correct me if i'm wrong but literally aren't they only in one scene together and it's just when butch has sort of refused to throw the fight and they show them in the locker room yeah that's the only scene that mia and marcellus share right i think so and then, you know, right. there's multiple times that we see Marcellus, you know, he's on Again, vacation. Again, he's on vacation. He's doing, but there's yeah. another woman there. Yeah. And I don't know if it, I, I honestly don't remember. I didn't read it as she's like a, a waitress or anything like that. I think mm-hmm. it's like his escort or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're, I think you're spot on. Yeah, I think she would make that jump. And, and I think, you know, um, before we before we wrap, I think we've you know, gone over a lot of the great high points and how beautifully done this film is. I do want to touch on one thing that I think is really important is that Marcellus's character and what he goes through, you mm-hmm. know, what he goes through that is a groundbreaking, horrifying experience yeah. in all the ways, you know, it, it, for film, yeah, for film at this time, for discussions around these topics yeah. and trigger warning. Truly, pause. Don't mm-hmm. listen if you don't want to keep listening. There's, a, a, there's a man here who gets raped. Yep. I mean, you can't get around that by by two men who are, sadly, but also doesn't excuse their behavior. Obviously, self loathing yeah. men who have you know are either gay or at least you know have gay tendencies, whatever it is, interest, uh, and and they are self loathing enough, and they have this toxic masculinity, and they they get their hands on him as a result of Butch's and his conflict. Yeah. 
and completely by chance they end up in this guy's basement and you know they they end up raping marsalis first and this is really it's a tough topic for all the reasons on this podcast we're trying to laugh right we're trying to have a yeah. good time this is fucking rough i had a bunch of punchlines ready and yeah. i now i'm not gonna say now any of them because i'm them. down yeah. in the dumps but we also can't i feel like again we owe it to not just the film and the work that's being done here but to these characters and to the time and to the real people that this probably represented also as well to talk about it, which is this was not a topic that was done in films. This was not something that you saw a lot of, Mm -hmm. especially not only rape in general, but man on man rape, Mm -hmm. Uh, people who are gay being villainized in this way. There's all kinds of things happening here that are incredibly complicated and can't be overlooked. And what I, again, I'm not going to get into the, the nuance and the, and the pain of all of that. But what I will say is that this is a very challenging, intense topic for someone to take on for their second film and to put it in a film at this time and in this way and address it in a way that brings out the humanity in people because there's this horrible act of violence happening against Marsalis, who is this strong, mm-hmm. you know, gangster guy that everyone's afraid mm-hmm. of, not these two guys, but everyone else is afraid of them. And they don't know what's coming for them if this guy gets out, if this guy gets free, right? Right. And, and, but also Butch doesn't know that he's going to get free. He doesn't know that he's going to survive this and he can't just leave him there. Yeah. And he saves him and he doesn't have to, he could just break free. He knows that this guy, if he helps save this guy, this guy has no onus to save him, to spare him, whatever. And that is, you know, every time I rewatch, I keep an eye on this and I look for a reaction because when Butch comes downstairs with the sword, he kills the first guy and then he's sort of messing with Zed. He's like, oh, go get your gun. Get you. He's got him, you know, at sword point. And then you hear the, the shotgun cock behind him and it's like, is he about to shoot Butch right now? Right. Because it's like he's got the gun. He could easily just kill both he of could. them. And uh, thankfully, that's not how it plays out. And it's sort of, you know, again, some of it the first time you watch it is played for laughs of him saying like, Hey, are you okay? And he's like, no, I'm not a fucking K. Yeah. And it's like, when I saw that at 18, I thought that was hilarious. But now I'm like, dude, that's how he would react because it's like, you just, but also the fact that he even, it's a simple line, but the fact that he even says, no, I'm not fucking okay. Yeah. Is a real reaction that you don't see in these situations. Mm -hmm. And especially from a man in front of another man, but this barrier has been broken down. Between these two guys who were enemies 20 minutes ago Mm -hmm. are now allies and not just allies. They have seen the seemingly the worst possible thing that they could see happen to one another in this situation. And they're now protective of that bond in the worst way. Right. Of like, yeah, horrible bond has happened Mm -hmm. and we're going to respect each other and take care of each other now. And he lets him go. Yeah. And I think it's a huge moment for the film that is is one of the more impactful moments for me now on a second, yeah. third, fourth, fifth watch yeah. that maybe didn't resonate back then as much as it should. I think it's really powerful. I think it's really brave. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I believe that this came out the same year as Shawshank, right? It's close. I think so. I think yeah. they might have been nominated for Best Picture like the same year. Yeah, it is. And it's interesting that you say, hey, during this time, you know, this wasn't, but two films came out that same year that involved man on man, you know, sexual violence. Right. And, you know, both are widely regarded as incredible pictures to this day. So interesting takeaway there. Uh, I do want to hard pivot. Uh, totally a little bit fine. and i appreciate we everything to, we you all need to it. recover from that so go ahead what what's so next? the one thing that this movie has that inglorious bastards does not have 
is a gimp. And I found that <laughs> very interesting. I was like, man, why is this guy not in every movie? And like, I just, yeah, wanted to pivot a little bit to that. What were your thoughts the first time you saw this and they took a person out of that box and just sort of strung him up? Because that's another topic of like sexual taboo that wasn't really, you know, on film to this point. Yeah, it, you know, to be honest, I guess I, I don't know when I first watched it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I don't know what the reaction was. I guess I was just ready for it on the on the later watches. So it didn't really, you know, register much to me. Yeah. But yeah, very taboo at the time. Again, like, this is a very groundbreaking film in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I did want to touch on is that unlike Inglorious Bastards, it was kind of a slow burn, at least initially. It did break its box office budget, you know, by, right. you know, umpteen times. I'm not saying that. But I think it is one of those that is regarded as a cult classic for a reason. It took a mm-hmm. while to really appreciate and understand. And I think this is this is early Tarantino work that we don't quite yet know his style. And also this is very different from Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. So it, you don't quite know what to expect from this story. And it is a seemingly um, pretty, pretty, you know uneventful but eventful kind of story these are real world situations i guess more like real life situations that you get these vignettes to um and so you don't know what to expect from this style but it turns out to touch on some really interesting topics yeah when you hear the term seedy underbelly i feel like that term gets thrown around a lot with sort of gangster films and things like that but the way that i interpret that is you're introducing you know the common american or worldwide public to situations that probably do happen, you know, in these environments with these types right. of, you know, uh, characters or real life people. And so, yeah, it's it's interesting to, to hear you say that. I wanted to touch on a couple things visually that I thought were pretty cool as far as cinematography. You mentioned the trunk shot earlier. One of my favorite shots in the film is when Butch goes back to his apartment to get the watch and he, you know, it's empty. He's mm-hmm. like, nobody's in there. He grabs his watch. He makes himself a Pop-Tart. And then you see his eyes look down and he sees something on the counter, but they don't show what he's looking at. Yeah. And then he does this double take of looking around the apartment. I'm just whipping my head. You guys can't see that. <laughs> but yeah, he does this double take of looking around of like, what, what is going on? It looked exactly like him in the movie in case you were <laughs> Thank curious. you. Thank you. Uh, and then eventually, you know, it slowly pans down 10 seconds later and shows us the big ass gun. Right. And I thought that shot was really cool because seeing him react to something, but not knowing but what he's reacting to was pretty cool. I do love that shot. I do think that's really creative. You know something's wrong, obviously. You know someone's there. Yeah. But it's this it's still a question mark. Yeah. We've got a couple other sort of the the classic Tarantino long shots that I dig. Um, I like the entrance into Jack Rabbit Slims, the 50s or 60s themed bar mm-hmm. where they're walking through there and it's sort of a one shot. Which also I love that fucking bar. Like I would just I would totally <laughs> go hang there. I yeah. love the music. I love the cars. I love the, the booths are cars. Like I just, oh, your <laughs> girl loves cars and I, I geek out. I thought it was beautiful. Yeah. You get a fun cameo from Steve Buscemi in there yeah. as well. <laughs> Ironically playing a waiter after he said in Reservoir Dogs that he doesn't tip. So doesn't I thought that was tip. kind yep. of funny. And then yep. John Travolta's like, he's not much of a waiter. Go figure. Yeah. Not so, going to get a tip, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and then actually I think the longest shot in the entire film is the one where Jules and Vincent are getting on the elevator in the initial sequence and then riding up to the apartment mm-hmm. and then they walk down the hallway and have a whole dialogue down there and then come back down the hallway mm-hmm. to the door. I think that scene runs like two and a half, three minutes almost. And it's mm-hmm. a one shot, which is pretty cool. I love a good long shot. I mean, there we're not going to take a hard left turn, but there are a couple 
uh, films that really stand out for me for long shots too. And mm-hmm. that is, that is a really impressive one. I really like it. So, yeah. I mean, he does some great shots here. He does some great storytelling here. And I love that it has gained the following that it has over mm-hmm. the course of its life. And I think that it's, it's a standout Tarantino flick. I don't know if it's my favorite though. So that's my question to you. I mean, I know we're going to keep talking about it, but this all, you know, the premise was yeah. what's the, what's maybe the best of these two or what's the best of his films? Is this like, what would you rate this Pulp Fiction? You rated Inglorious Bastards pretty highly as a reminder. Yeah, I said Inglorious was probably a 9.8 for me. Yeah. This would probably be a 10. I mean, if I took off any points at really? all, I do think the Butch sequence goes on a little long yeah. because not only do Again, you have... He doesn't like dialogue and stories <laughs> and he doesn't have patience Just for them Transformers. Now. Just give me Transformers <laughs> give in every me movie. Why is this so difficult um but no you get the seat you get the christopher walken monologue which is followed by butch in the cab and you get that long dialogue sequence yeah. then he gets back to his hotel room and you get a long know, dialogue you sequence. don't like people like, talking okay just that part drags that is the only part and it, all the separately those conversations are all fascinating but all of those in a row without yeah. sort of an action beat is what sort of throws me in that sequence so maybe a 9.9 but 9. i do 9. like that i will rewatch that's pulp fiction than glorious bastards though that's fair uh, I thought you were the nice judge. Yeah, but a 9.8 and a 9.9 is pretty yeah, nice. Pretty I feel like those are close. fair ratings. And yeah, I think I would, if you if you were to ask me, hey, what do you want to watch tonight? It would be Pulp Fiction more what often if? than Inglourious okay. Bastards. I, I think love that's both. that's a very great question. Because I think you can rate something highly and be like, I can't ever watch it again. You know what I mean? Not these yeah. particularly, but I just mean movies in general. Mm-hmm. There are things you can rate highly and be like, it was a beautiful film. I'm never going to watch it But I never want to sit through I that I never want to sit through it again. Yeah. yeah. No, I totally. How about you? Rating? Uh, I I think I, I think I lean in Glorious Bastards on this okay. one for a lot of reasons. I love the I love the Shoshana shot. I didn't get to talk about this actually. I realized as we were talking that At I the did not mention this. The Shoshana shot of no, not the marquee of the 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 fire and her Face. laughing on yes. the screen. Just God, so classic, beautiful. And I just love the I love the story. I love the vengeance for her. I love the. Uh, the way that it's done. I love the kind of comeuppance for Christoph. So I, I lean a little bit more Inglorious Bastards in this way. And I gave them like, what? I, gave I think them you like gave an eight. Eight. Yeah. yeah. I would say an eight. Just again, I'm a dick. I don't give anybody a 10. You don't have a single movie in your collection that's a 10 to you? No, that's not true. And that's a whole other conversation. Okay. All right. I don't give a lot of people tens is what I should say. Asterisk. Okay. I don't give a lot yeah. of people tens or very gotta few. be I careful take... with our hyperbole. This is I, recorded. People I know, can come I know. back it's to this. It's on record. People can hold us. this hold me to this later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's only a couple is what I would say that I consider a ten. Uh everybody else starts at a nine for me. Um mm-hmm. and Glorious Bastards, I think again I would land at like an eight, eight and a half. This I think is probably like an eight. Yeah. Like okay. a solid eight. They're kind of tied. But again, if I had to edge one out, it would be Inglorious Bastards. That'd be the one I would want to rewatch more. Yeah. Um, but I do really enjoy this movie. I love watching it. I think it's a great film. Awesome. Yeah, I think there's a lot of parallels between the two. You know, they're 15 years apart. And but you still get your your Tarantino isms. You get your tense. Mm-hmm. We talked about this last week. Your tense diner scenes or table like scenes of people having tough conversations yeah. across the table from each other. Um, I love that it's dialogue heavy. You know, you'll, mm-hmm. we'll talk more about this in future episodes. But I respect any filmmaking that isn't just about effects. You know, mm-hmm. that you are telling a story and you're writing it well. And you just can't argue that it wa- that it wasn't written well. I mean, it won for best screenplay for a reason. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a great, it's a very well-written work. And, and we'll see more of them over the next couple weeks. Yeah. 
We're going to do a couple more. So what are we doing? We're going to do Hateful Eight. We're going to do Hateful Eight because, as we said last week, it's probably the most divisive. I know a lot of folks who saw that once and really did not like it. Which, I have not heard this information. I'm going to have to recon between now and then because I don't understand that. I've heard the word boring thrown what? around. What? And what? too long. What? And, yep, yeah, see? So that's why we're going to talk I'm about so it. I'm so upset. Okay. No, it's very divisive. I love that. Okay, but we do need a fourth. So, again, hit us with your suggestions for our last Tarantino flick. What's going to What's going to take us out? Yeah. For the month. What's going to get you to listen? You know, you got to come back yeah. for a fourth week. So what, what do you most want to... content? You tell us. I usually just bribe people with money, but that's difficult mm, in the podcast game. That. It would get expensive mm, real quick. Mm, we're real broke already. <laughs> this already costs us more to make. <laughs> Can I make two final real quick notes about Pulp Fiction just to wrap us up? Number one, there is a misconception that Vanilla Coke being referenced in this was sort of a prediction like it was because vanilla coke didn't exist until like five or ten years later vanilla coke became a thing you could buy in bottles but the term vanilla coke has been around since like the 1940s like you could well a put, soda fountain you could yes. always add so you syrup. just put vanilla in yeah. it so that's why it's a themed diner that's why they have vanilla mm-hmm. coke so just clarifying that and then the last thing i wanted to say is the the five dollar shake he talks about how expensive it is with today's inflation. That doesn't seem so fucking bad. Five dollar uh, milkshake. Please. I was gonna make this point is that my favorite movie theater, uh, of which I am a, a top brass member. Thank you very much, Ooh. Alamo Draft House. Shout out, sponsor us. Whoop, whoop. Uh, it had a five dollar milkshake on their menu for the longest time. Of course, as a reference to this, they still have the Royal with cheese on their menu as a reference to Pulp mm-hmm. Fiction. Uh, and that is not a $5 milkshake anymore, and it hasn't been for quite some fucking time. And same thing, inflation took that one out. Uh, but that was such a great film reference on a menu, yes. and now it's gone. So. And actually, speaking of film references, the last thing that I will say about this movie was that I did not know that the rapper Machine Gun Kelly was named after a motion picture, but there is a poster in Jack Rabbit Slim. Oh, Slim's, you mean his given uh, birth name, Machine Gun he, Kelly? Yeah, Machine Gun Kelly yeah, Johnson. Cool. Um, <laughs> there is a poster in Jack Rabbit Slim's of the film Machine Gun Kelly, and I was like, yeah. Is is that a real movie? And then I IMDb it. Yep, real film. And yeah, I did you don't not know, know Machine Gun Kelly was. <sighs> nope. Oh, we can have a whole talk about that. Okay. All right. Well, uh, for for another one, for another future state. But for now, thanks for hanging with us and listening to us talk all things Tarantino. Come back for a couple more. We're Tarantino November. Tarantino November. So for now, though, go have a drink and watch a thing. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.